Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. Thanks for being here. I'm David Brody. It's Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021. And this period in late June is reserved for big Supreme Court decisions because the high court wraps their session by the end of the month. And so today, a big decision regarding the First Amendment, a whopping 8-1 count. The justices said that a former high school cheerleader cannot be punished by her public school for sending a profanity-laced Snapchat when she was off school grounds. It is being seen as a victory for free speech and the First Amendment we will explore. Also, the U.S. Senate says no to a Democrat plan that would federalize elections in America. All the Democrats voted yes, no shock, uh, to debating it at least. Republicans indeed held firm to say this was a liberal power grab. Of course, Democrats want mail-in ballots for everybody and no voter ID. Also today on the show. A wild scene in Loudoun County, by the way, Virginia, that's in Virginia. Parents yelling shame on you to the Loudoun County school board members who shut down a raucous meeting during a big debate over transgender rights in school. We're going to get into that. And also, by the way, we're going to follow up on how Real America's Voice YouTube page was banned from uploading any videos for a week after they posted our Monday interview with President Trump. Absolutely insane. Mark Meckler will be here to discuss. But first, Let's get to that Supreme Court decision and news of the day with our first guest uh, back with us is Russ Vogt, the former budget director for the Trump administration and now president of the Center for Renewing America. Russ, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to begin with that Supreme Court case regarding the, the former cheerleader. What, what's your take on what the Supreme Court decided today? Yeah, it's an interesting case because you have eight justices, but that one in dissent happens to be Clarence Thomas. So I'm always going to look carefully as to the reasons for his dissent. But I think largely the, the eight justices viewed this as a, a, a way to pull back on the what's happening in society with regard to cancel culture uh, and you know an important uh, victory for free speech. And at the, on the other hand, you have Justice Thomas trying to make sure that none of the precedents that would be put in place would over ride the ability for school districts to be able to protect kids, protect the learning environment, and not uh, ensure that kids are not being harmed. Uh, and we know that there are, at the same time in the society, many opportunities where, where, where we would want a school district that's not being ridiculous to be able to ensure that uh, kids aren't being harmed or bullied or, uh, or, or, their, or their health is being protected. So, you know, I think in the wash, uh, great result, and hopefully the, the dissent 
is, is taken credibly and seriously as policymakers try to uh, put this into practice. Russ, I'll have to get a legal scholar on for this next question, but I'm just curious. It's, it's been striking to me as kind of a layperson out there to see a lot of 9-0 decisions, 8-1 decisions, 7-2s. I mean, do you think this, I wonder if the court is trying to, Roberts is trying to somehow uh, send a message with some of these uh, more, uh, uh, less lopsided, or more lopsided decisions. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure he is. I'm sure that he's giving cases uh, to people that write uh, dissents in such a way that can run up the score as opposed to providing the clearest uh, articulation of what the law should be. Uh, I think that's long been one of his projects to be able to, in his mind, protect the court. I think the challenge is that uh, it ultimately does not protect the court because these these decisions, uh, particularly in the last several years, not necessarily this year, but particularly in the last several years, they look like political decisions, which I think is the worst thing from the standpoint of the court. Right. Russ, I want to get to, in a moment, I'll get to the voting bill that was uh, not taken up for debate yesterday in the Senate. But first, I want to get to infrastructure. Uh, obviously, you'll you'll know a lot about this clearly, uh, especially from a budget perspective. Uh, there are headlines about how Biden, uh, Congress divided on how to pay for infrastructure. Uh, what, what's your sense on the pay force here? Because this seems to be a big stumbling block. I think it remains a, a stumbling block. They have not reached an agreement. Uh, they are hard at work negotiating yesterday, negotiating today. Uh, you know, I, a couple of pay fors that were put on the on the table were, were rejected. And I think on reasonable grounds in terms of raising the gas tax uh, as something that uh, the Biden administration wanted to, didn't go in that direction. Uh, but there's other concerning pay fors. You know, one of them would be giving the IRS uh, further enforcement power to do additional audits. Uh, I don't think that's where the American people want to see more audits uh, across the country, uh, particularly from an IRS that was uh, kind of notorious before the last administration for getting in the business. Of, of, of many hardworking Americans. So uh, the pay fors is where the, the action is. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's not clear to me how much of the, the Biden agenda is going to go away just because they have an agreement on this first bill. They still have, you know, upwards of $3 trillion additional spending that they're trying to get done. So I think we're a long way from being able to, to move towards a, a true bipartisan moment where we fix infrastructure and we also deal with the debt and deficits. Well, and the sad part is, is that, I mean, for Republicans and conservatives, is that even if they did come to an agreement on this, there is something else in the works on budget reconciliation. I mean, Bernie Sanders is going for the whole enchilada on all these uh, all these social welfare programs that they're calling infrastructure, and they're going to they're gonna try to push that through budget reconciliation after the fact. Right. I mean, that's my point, David, in the sense of if you're going to agree to an actual a compromise, We'll agree to a trillion, but you don't go forward with your additional three trillion. I can understand that. That's not what's being de determined here. They're saying we're going to get a trillion, we're going to move it through regular order, and then we're going to get the rest of it via reconciliation. It makes no sense to me. But uh, you know, the, 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 they are trying to move forward and, and get a, an agreement and, and address some of the worst aspects of the Biden deal. Russ, I want to ask you about the voting bill. Uh, it's been called H.R. Uh, 1, of course, uh, SB 1, all of that. Uh, the Republican filibuster uh, in the Senate did indeed kill that legislation in the Senate chamber. Uh, what's your take on what we're seeing here? Uh, because ultimately, what the progressives really want is they want to end that legislative filibuster so they can pass this and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, yesterday was an important day to kind of reflect reality that they have two issues. Number one, they don't have the votes on the filibuster 
to move to the bill or to override the filibuster. Number two, they don't have the votes on the underlying bill. So even if they were to overcome the filibuster and get Democrats to change the rules, they don't as yet have the votes on an underlying bill. And I think that's what Manchin has been trying to accomplish of, of being able, he's opposed to that bill. Uh, he's put forward amendments. Uh, we don't think that those amendments uh, get us anywhere near uh, a bill that could, should be supported. Uh, but, you know, this is, there are, there are several obstacles for us for a bill to become law. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that they, the left has fully appreciated that as of right now. Um, and, you know, you have to get a sense of how much they are doing this to, to uh, reflect where their base wants them to be. Uh, but, you know, if the Senate wants to get things done, they should move in a different direction than considering uh, these, you know, bills that basically make systemic voting fraud permanent. Right, for sure. Hey, Russ, uh, over there uh, at the center where you're at, uh, you are doing some very important work on a range of issues, especially when it comes to critical race theory. I know you have the Center for a Renewing America toolkit, in essence, and we have it up there. It's uh, combating critical race theory in your community. Tell people about this, how they can get more information. This is fascinating. Thanks. Uh, it, you can go to AmericaRenewing.com. It'll pop right up. You'll be able to download the toolkit. But here's the importance of what we're doing. You know, it's critical race theory if you're concerned about state-sanctioned racism. It doesn't just identify itself. You have to know the buzzwords. You have to know the concepts. You have to know the paradigms that are being taught and how to recognize them. And based on our experience at the Office of Management and Budget, where we were teaching agency heads, guiding agency heads about how to get rid of this at the federal government level, we figured th this out and we put this into a toolkit for parents and, and local uh, activists. So uh, it's an important uh, document and hopefully it can be used to serve many of the people that are, are courageously going to the microphones at school board meetings and pushing back on what uh, their school boards are trying to do. Russ, this has really become a signature issue uh, in America and, and especially in conservative Republican circles. And I would think a defining one for the midterm elections coming up. Uh, it is certainly on the minds of, of voters, um, you know, in terms of not just uh, Republicans, but uh, many Democrats and, and certainly independents. Uh, this is the issue where the American people are concerned about. I would call it a cultural issue. And unfortunately, we haven't seen much of the debate happen at the federal level. There's some great pockets of people that are, are working on it, but it hasn't reached the point where we're having, uh, we're, we're being able to use leverage points against the Biden administration. That's my hope over the next several months. I would think that this is not going to play well, at least electorally, politically, in the suburbs and exurbs where we're seeing in Loudoun County, as you saw at the top of the show and other places, that uh, there's like a parent, like a mini parent revolt in a way. It is. This has such an, an ability to, to capture people across the political spectrum because you're changing everyone's view of what America is all about. And no one wants to send their kids to a school and have them be told that because of the color of their skin, they're part of the oppressor class. Right, for sure. All right. Russ Vogt, really appreciate your time. President for the Center for Renewing America. Thanks, Russ. All the best. Thanks, David. All right. Uh, Russ Vote with some really great keen insight uh, here on the water cooler. When we come back, censorship, big tech censorship. And who better to talk about that than Mark Meckler, the former interim CEO of Parler. He'll be here to talk about how Real America's Voice had their YouTube page in essence shut down for a week over our interview with President Trump. We'll talk about it when we come back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in 
every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. We do a lot of big tech censorship stories here at The Water Cooler. And here's, uh, here's one. Here's a Tier A big tech censorship story. Say that five times fast. Did an interview, as you know, with President Trump on Monday. Guess what? Uh, that next morning, Real America's Voice YouTube page was literally banned for a week. We'll get to that in a moment. This is what set, uh, apparently, YouTube off this part of the interview. Have a look. No, I never admitted defeat. We have a lot of things happening right now. I think that that was an election that was, I don't think, all you have to do is read the newspapers and see what's coming out now. No, I never, the word is concede. I have not conceded. No. I have not conceded is what he said. Anyhow, uh, Real America's Voice put up the entire interview and their YouTube page, and we'll show you, there it is. You can see YouTube sent them Real America's Voice basically this message saying, sorry, uh, we're uh, banning you for a week. You can't upload videos for a week. Uh, it was deceptive, X, Y, and Z. Unbelievable. I mean, th this is where we're at uh, today in America. You interview uh, the former president of the United States. Uh, and the last time I checked, what happened to free speech? What happened to the First Amendment? Let's get more on this uh, with Mark Meckler, uh, the president of the Convention of States Action, and of course, the former interim uh, CEO of Parler. Mark, always good to see you, sir. Good to be with you. Well, uh, where do I begin? Have a 30,000-foot view of, of the reaction to the fact that Real America's Voice has literally been banned for a week because of that interview. Yeah. Look, the word I would use, it may seem a little bit hyperbolic, it's not, is fascist. What we have here is tech oligarchs in league with the Democrats in charge of the government censoring speech, essentially. Obviously, the government could not do this. But the Biden administration supports it. Those in the administration support it. They think there are things that we should be allowed to hear and those that we should not be allowed to hear. And they consider it, quote unquote, dangerous that you actually played the real words and the real opinion of the former president of the United States. I think this is dangerous. This kind of censorship is very dangerous. So then the question becomes, what, what do we what do people do? I mean, you know, how do you how do you fight big tech censorship? I know there's been talk of Section 230 from a legislative standpoint, uh, and maybe that's part of the solution. But it just seems much bigger than Section 230 here, Mark. Yeah, I think there are two solutions, and and one is something to do with Section 230 and just a redefinition there. That's not going to happen with the Democrats in control. So right. <laughs> it's off the table for now, and at least until 2024. What really needs to happen is what Parler was all about, right? Which was creating an alternative. And there are alternative platforms. For example, there's an alternative to YouTube, which is Rumble, and Rumble is growing. It's just taken major investment from some of great minds in tech, Peter Thiel among them. So Rumble will be growing. Growing. We need to build the alternatives. I'm not among the crew that thinks you should bail off of Facebook or bail off of Twitter or wherever. Continue to use those if they benefit you, but build the alternative infrastructure in regard to Rumble, Parler, and other places like that. You know what's fascinating to me regarding this whole Trump interview and Real America's Voice uh, in terms of the YouTube ban? Stacey Abrams, in her own words, has admitted that she has never conceded that race in Georgia when she ran for governor. I mean, she, she, or, she, she ne or did I say governor? I'm sorry, Senate. Senate. Uh, she, never, she never admitted 
or conceded at all. And yet she has been out on CNN and MSNBC and all these other places basically explaining why she never conceded. Why in the world is YouTube? Because that stuff's going up on YouTube as well, not to mention Facebook and other. It, it, it's, it's like a total double standard regarding the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Well, the left and the tech oligarchs would have no standards if it were not for double standards. They really don't have standards. Their standard is you can say things we agree with. You can't say things that we disagree with. Uh, Stacey Abrams literally, as you said, has never conceded that she lost the governor's race. Let's, let's remember that the DNC put her in a governor's panel at their last convention as if she were the governor of Georgia. She's never conceded that race. She never will. Uh, she also, by the way, remember, attributes what happened to voter fraud. We're not allowed to talk about voter fraud and election integrity, but she is and they are. These are double standards in being imposed against the right. They're not being imposed on the right. They are against the right. This is why we need alternative media. This is why you exist and people like you, because we have to be able to tell the truth on the air and on the Internet. So I'm all for alternative uh, media and social media sites and all of that. Uh, what about uh, this argument? And, and it's argued from both sides, for example, uh, on Twitter. Uh, sh should you stay on Twitter? Should you leave Twitter? You know, you make a statement if you leave Twitter and say, you know, I'm done with all of this. But at the same time, you want to be engaged in the conversation. I, I, I remember Tommy Laren was on the show about a month ago and she, she gets it. She understands why there would be a reason to leave. But at the same time, she wants to be in the mix and, and, and you know, and not not see us. Uh, what's the word I'm looking just succumb, if you will, uh, and, and let the liberals have their playpen on Twitter. What, what's your take on that? So I think it depends on sort of your position in the speaking hierarchy. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. if you have a significant voice on Twitter and a lot of people are listening to you on Twitter, in my opinion, you should stay and you should use that platform against the left if you're a person of the right. If you're the average person on Twitter and you're just there, you know, watching and, and you don't participate that much, I would say leave. I'll be honest with you. I was somewhere in between. I left Twitter. I still have a Twitter account. I rarely use it. Sometimes I use it to mock Twitter, but I rarely use it. But if you have a big platform and good distribution, I don't think you give that up. I think you build alternatives behind and around it. Does, does this get worse, Mark, before it gets better? What's your what's, what's your sense of where this is going? And, and what about the the Trump factor in all of this as it relates to he's going to have a new social media platform and that'll be interesting or eventually we assume he's going to have one. Yeah, I do think it gets much worse. I think where we're headed is if you look at Orwell's 1984, there's something called unpersoning that took place in there. In fact, I'm working on a documentary called Cancelled about the cancel culture right now. This is very dangerous. What they intend to do is to erase us, not just your YouTube page, but you personally. They'd like to prevent you from getting a job prevent you from being able to engage in the social sphere, prevent you from shopping online. Where this is headed is where China is, where you have essentially a measurement of your appropriate social capital to determine whether you're allowed to speak, exist, and be online. And of course today, existing without being online, very difficult to do. So I think this results ultimately, if we allow it unfettered control in total control. So as we wrap up here, I've got 30 seconds. I mean, this ultimately is about values here. I mean, someone's values are going to reign supreme. And this is a cultural battle between uh, good and evil, left and right, whatever you want to call it. I think it's a battle, frankly, between fascism and communism and, and free people who believe in free thought. These people are fascists. These people are communists. Whatever they call themselves, I don't own what they call themselves. They are fascists and communists who want totalitarian control of our system. They want to control what you think, what you say, what you can see. We can't allow that. Mark Meckler, great insight. I really appreciate you being here, the president of Convention of States Action and, of course, the former interim CEO of Parler. Mark, thank you, sir. Thanks, David.
Great stuff. And uh, honestly, uh, as much as I liked Mark's comments, as I told him before uh, he came on the air, that Skype shot behind him, I mean, Madison, that is, that's good stuff. No, that's the Skype shot of Skype shots. We're room rating here at the water cooler. That is an 11 out of 10. I'm just letting you know. Back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Look. Uh, they're, you know, they call themselves uh, pro-choice, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood and the, the whole crowd. Uh, the the pro-life community calls them pro-abortion. And look, I got to tell you, uh, what is being uh, basically uh, sold, pitched, uh, positioned uh, by the left in this country is exactly that. I mean, it's pro-abortion. I mean, th they won't even acknowledge that a baby that is 15 weeks old is human. FYI. Uh, so I want you to listen to this from Jen Psaki from Monday. Um, does the president believe that a 15-week-old unborn baby is a human being? Are you asking me if the president supports a woman's right to choose? He does. Go ahead. That's the answer. By the way, unborn baby. I said 15-week-old baby, uh, unborn baby. But look, uh, hello. Uh, th th this is this is the mentality of the Biden White House today, uh, and of course the headlines are are all over the place on this. Look, White House uh, SBA list putting this out. Susan B. Anthony list putting this out. White House refuses to say that a 15-week-old unborn baby is a human being. Uh, let's get more with this or on this uh, with the SBA list. Mallory Quigley joins us. She's the vice president of communications there at SBA. Uh, Mallory, great to have you on the show. Thanks, David. I appreciate your time. Uh, such an important issue. Why don't you take us through this? Um, th th this is really, I mean, unfortunately, it's, sh it's shocking, but it's not shocking. Yes, it's not shocking at all. Kudos to that reporter, though, for asking mm -hmm. um, the press secretary that question. This is really a relevant question in light of the news that the Supreme Court is going to be considering um, the question of whether or not states can stop abortions before the point that the baby is considered viable. And it's a 15-week law out of the uh, out of the state of Mississippi that's prompting that Supreme Court review. Um, you know, at the same time that, that Jennifer Saki was asked this question and, you know, deflected in the most bizarre way, um, you know, this is this is a pattern that of her being asked specific policy questions about abortion and either um, you know, deferring to the president's Catholicism or some other kind of odd um, answer that is filled with euphemisms, and she tries to get on to the next subject as soon as possible. But uh, concurrently to that question being asked, there was a news report about the youngest preemie ever to survive, a 21-week-old baby um, who was born and doctors said he had no chance of survival, and I believe he just turned two. So viability, you, you know, viability, the humanity of these children, um, everything else in our culture is revealing the the humanity of these children, and they ought to have the protection of the law. So 
but the Biden administration disagrees. Yeah, and, and Jen Psaki has to pivot and go somewhere else. There, there are no answers. There, well, the answer is not something she wants to give from the White House podium uh, because Americans will, will catch on to that. And that was even the case on the whole communion issue. She wanted to punt that too. Uh, it's just not uh, politically palatable for them at all. Uh, Ma Mallory, let me show you this uh, new pro-life poll. Well, you actually, you know about it, actually. This is a National Catholic Register headline, pro-life group. Hey, that's you guys. Uh, new poll demonstrates support for 15-week abortion ban. Uh, it kind of makes the point here that, indeed, it seems like the American public is with you when it comes to this specific part of the debate about abortion. That's right. The American people is with us, in fact, on almost every pro-life policy initiative. If you're asking specifically about legislation, legislation and policy, where would people draw a line um, in the sand to say, we're going to protect babies starting at this point in these circumstances, um, the American people are with us. It's only on the question of whether or not their support for the concept of Roe versus Wade. Um, and and we are going to come out with new polling um, this week, actually, that shows that Americans just don't understand the reality of the Supreme Court jurisprudence on abortion thus far. And that, like it or not, ag agree with abortion or disagree, the United States is one of seven countries in the whole world that allows abortion beyond 15 weeks, beyond 20 weeks, indeed, all the way up to the moment of birth when these children can feel pain, they're yawning, they're sucking their thumb, they're interacting you know, with light and sound as they experience these things in the womb, they're beginning little kicking motions, blood is pumping through their bodies, um, and we just have a, a wealth of scientific and medical information that reveals their humanity. So um, I think these kinds of polls are really important because they give a, a pulse check on where the American people are at in terms of where we ought to be legislating. And that is, um, you know, ultimately our goal is to protect these babies under the law. Yeah, and by the way, you, speaking of the law, you, you mentioned fetal pain. Uh, and I know there's legislation out there about 20 weeks and all that, but, but, is, but is it not correct that uh, on the fetal pain issue, I mean, b babies at that point can feel pain at what, is it as early as eight weeks, I believe even? Uh, I mean, I've heard, yeah, I've heard so that. Yes, so um, I'm going to encourage everyone to go to the um, Campaign for Human in, um, Development, Endowment for Human Development. It's an incredible website that goes through the different stages. But babies can feel pain at least by 15 weeks. The pain receptors are there as early as seven weeks. So this is really, you know, there's so much still to be learned about life inside the womb. Our own lives, we all started in the same place, David, um, about what was going on, what's going on inside um, the mom's body as the child grows. And so you're right, that 20 weeks really is, um, is just a point at least by which that children can feel pain. The evidence is there for much earlier. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's a perfectly new and unique human being individual that is there from the moment of conception um, yeah. that deserves protection. I've got less than a minute left, maybe about 30 seconds or so. Give us a sense of how this is going to play politically in 2022 in the midterms. How are you guys going to engage? And uh, this is always a key issue, obviously, but but this is, uh, give me a sense of the strategy kind of going forward for midterms. Yes. 
the strategy is to expose the extremism of our opponents politically and inside the abortion lobby. They want to force taxpayers to fund late-term abortion on demand. That's simply not popular. We're going to be getting our candidates to go on offense and to expose this extremism, drawing that clear contrast so that people know who they're voting for uh, when the elections come around. Very nice. Mallory Quigley, always great to see you. We've known each other a while. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. Thanks, David. All right, Mallory Quigley there with SBA List. And by the way, I want to uh, cl not clarify something. I just want to point out that even though we put that pro-life poll up there, uh, I also want to be clear that Gallup uh, tracks with those numbers as well. We could have put up a Gallup poll uh, when it comes to uh, people, Americans overall, about 58% or so, not okay uh, with uh, babies or, or basically saying babies indeed uh, are babies when they're unborn in 15 weeks, and that's coming from Gallup as well, so it's not just pro-life polls. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk to Tim Barton, the president of Wall Builders. Crazy stuff happening at school districts around the country. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the water cooler. I always have to think of the name of the show. Madison, you need to remind, can you remind me at the end of this beginning of each, thank you, Madison's gonna remind me, because I gotta tell you, age, uh, you know, you'll know what I'm saying at some point, and if you're not at that age already. Uh, all right, so Ron DeSantis, he's like the golden child in Republican politics. He's he's like on fire, uh, and that was a New York accent. Uh, he's now saying that Florida students are going to be taught that communism is evil. In other words, they're going to be taught the truth. Anyhow, uh, here's Ron DeSantis. Curriculum can really provide a guide to how that should be done. Uh, the bill also expands uh, our previous efforts in civics to add a requirement for the high school government class that um, students receive instruction on the evils of communism and totalitarian ideologies. Uh, we have uh, a number of people in, in Florida, particularly southern Florida, who've escaped uh, totalitarian regimes, who've escaped communist dictatorships um, to be able to come to America. Uh, we want all students to understand. He goes on, but you get the gist. Uh, this is where we're at in America, that we actually have to teach uh, students. Hey, by the way, did you know communism is evil? All right, let's bring in uh, Tim Barton, uh, president of Wall Builders. Uh, Tim, great to have you on the show, sir. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate being on. Tim, th this is a, uh, is a cultural battle in America going on. It's been going on for a very long time, but, but do you get a sense that we're in a much different phase now? It really seems like uh, we're on the precipice of something very, very bad and evil out there. Yeah, we, we've seen literally for decades progressive trying to move America in a very different direction. And uh, it's, it's culminated over the last couple of years. We had the 2019 uh, 1619 project come out. And now you have critical race theory being taught literally in every single state in the nation. And it's why you're seeing parents rising up around the nation saying this has to stop. We can't do this. And right now it's so crazy that Ron DeSantis is being attacked and criticized for having the audacity 
to promote the idea that communism, that the ideology that has led to more than 100 million people dying in the 20th century alone, that that, that ideology is actually a bad, evil ideology, which of course it is. It's crazy that we're now at a place that this is not generally accepted common information or the notion that now we're teaching something like this is controversial, but this is where we are nonetheless. I do see a lot of positives that you're seeing people stand up with more courage on a greater level. It's why you're having parents go to school board meetings, getting involved in the process. I'm encouraged in the midst of the chaos and craziness that, that we are turning a corner in some areas in America. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the parents because it made us maybe think of Loudoun County, which we mentioned at the top of the uh, program, that Loudoun County in Virginia there, the school board, in essence, cut off public, not in essence, they did, they cut off public comment on transgender policies. And two, two parents were actually arrested. I mean, it's getting very, very volatile uh, here on, on, ve on very toxic cultural issues because, mm -hmm. in, in essence, it's a... It's a fight for uh, someone's values, as I like to say, are going to reign supreme uh, here. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that, that you really see reflected in some of these school board meetings is part of the progressive ideology uh, is really that Americans, it's, it's kind of like we're the animals in the zoo. And in progressive ideology, you need zookeepers. You need the government to be the one to take care of you. And you see right now the school boards in many situations think they are so much smarter than all of the parents of these children that these parents shouldn't have the audacity to try to tell them what they can and can't do and training these kids. And so it, it really is encouraging to see parents stand up, but this is why you're seeing pushback in a lot of cases from these school boards and they're calling the police on on these parents. They're, they're telling parents that we're not gonna pray, we're not gonna say the pledge, we're, we're not gonna have the national anthem, nothing that's patriotic, nothing that's pro-America, we're gonna do critical race theory. You're seeing this clash of philosophies happening at the local level, but this is also where you solve the problem. You solve the problem on the local level, and this is why parents need to get involved. It's how we take back our schools. It's, it's how we turn the nation around. Yeah getting involved at the local level. And speaking about the local level, I have to play you this uh, soundbite from this nine-year-old girl in Minnesota. You may have seen it. Uh, she's, she's fully against the BLM movement that's kind of infiltrated her school. This is a nine-year-old girl speaking at a school board meeting. Fascinating. I want to play a little bit of this for you. The other day I was walking down the hallway at Lakeview Elementary School to give a teacher a retiring gift. I looked up onto the wall and saw a BLM poster and an Amanda Gorman poster. In case you don't know who that chick is, she's some girl who did a poem at Biden's so-called inauguration. I was so mad. I was told two weeks ago at this very meeting spot, no politics in school. I believed what you said at this meeting. So at lunch I went up to my principal to tell him about the BLM poster and that I I wanted it down. He said it's not coming down. I was like, yeah, it is, because the school board said on May 25th, no BLM or politics in school. He said, that's weird. I, I can go on. You've got to check it out. Uh, just Google Minnesota nine-year-old girl. What's your, what's your take on, on her and, and kind of the whole, the whole uh, younger generation out there? Yeah, so, so first of all, I, I love it. I, I love when, when even a nine-year-old can see the level of hypocrisy of, of what this school board is doing, of what the school is doing, where they're promoting an ideology, and they're saying no politics, but really what they mean is no conservative values. That's really what we're seeing under attack here. It, when this nine-year-old is standing up, it's so encouraging. It's so incredible. And again, we're seeing this kind of thing happen around the nation. Now, it's ridiculous that we're having to have these battles, that these fights are going on. But one of literally the best things that's happened for parents in the educational arena 
is when COVID happened, schools were shut down, their kids had to come home, and parents begin to be exposed to some of this ideology, some of this, this inaccurate history, this nonsense, these lies that are being told to students around the nation. When parents got exposed to that, they then realized we need to stand up. And, and even now, where you know these parents had to be encouraging this nine-year-old, hey, you need to stand up and say something. Yeah. Not only are parents standing up, they're encouraging their kids to stand up. This is a great day for America. I, I've got about a minute left. I've got to ask you about that op-ed you wrote. Uh, it's about Juneteenth, the untold history of Juneteenth. Look, uh, hello, uh, we're, everybody's against slavery. I mean, hello, do I really need to do a disclaimer on that? But but there were some interesting uh, points you made in that op-ed. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the most important things to identify is that as people look at slavery in America, they want to criticize America for having something that every nation in the history of the world had without recognizing the fact that America actually was on the forefront of stopping this evil. We were one of the first nations in the world to oppose it. And so Juneteenth should be celebrated as a great moment in America's history where good was conquering evil, where we were helping end one of the great evils, not just in our nation, but something that still exists in the world today. America is a force for good. And June 19th is just one more example of that. Well, Tim uh, Barton, great to have you on the show. I just the, the insight is just just wonderful, and I really appreciate your time. Love to get you back on real soon. Would love to. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Tim Barton, president of Wall Builders, with some great insight and a great voice. Look, he's got a face for television, <coughs> unlike me, uh, but he has got a voice for radio, for sure. All right, when we come back, uh, it's time for the last sip, uh, and I'm kind of excited about this last sip because I'm going to give, finally, uh, two days later, my analysis of the Trump interview. I've interviewed him over 20 times. What did I think exactly of, of uh, his uh, candor, his demeanor, all of that? I've got a lot to say about it when we come back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the Water Cooler, everybody. Time for the last sip. We did an interview with President Trump on Monday. Have you heard? We keep talking about it. I mean, that's us. That's what we do. We're narcissistic. Um, a couple of things about the interview, and I really, I mean, we could talk about the, the content, obviously, and he made a lot of news. Obviously, he said, I have not conceded, and he talked about Mike Pence saying, look, if Pence had done the right thing, you might have a new president uh, today. Uh, and he also talked about uh, the Supreme Court justices, very disappointed in Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh. Anyhow, all very, very interesting, tons of news out of the interview. Uh, what I really want to talk about is a little bit more about his demeanor. I've interviewed him over 20 times. I think it's 23 times now, going back to 2011. That's right, 2011 was the first one. Uh, and y you never know what kind of, I don't want to say mood he's going to be in, but you never know uh, how, how he's going to uh, be in an interview. Uh, I've had the jovial President Trump. I've had the stern President Trump. I've had the quick President Trump, and I've had the storyteller President Trump. Uh, he was not a storyteller on Monday. He was the quick uh, President Trump. He, he Kind of like the uh, New York, time is money, let's go. And guess what? Perfect. 
perfect for the interview. Why? Because if I had the storyteller, uh, President Trump, on that day, I probably would have been able to ask three questions. He would have gone on for a few minutes or three or four minutes each time, and that would have been the end of the interview. Instead, we were able to do a whole lot more. I got about, I don't know, 10, 12, 14, something like that, questions in because he was quick uh, that day. So actually, I liked that. A couple quick stories about President Trump. I'll just tell you one uh, off the top of my mind. Th this gives you a sense of who Donald Trump uh, is. He's got a great sense of humor, and of course, it's always about Donald Trump, isn't it? So this was during the campaign uh, in 2015, I had just done a uh, live hit on Morning Joe. I know. I was on with Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. I was talking about Marco Rubio, who was in the race and running for president at the time. And uh, I had known Trump for about five years before that. Anyhow, I just got off the air from my Morning Joe hit talking about Marco Rubio. All of a sudden, my phone rings, and it's Donald Trump. Doesn't introduce himself. He just says, hey, you weren't very nice to me. That's what he says to me on the phone. And I say to him, what are you talking about? I, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about Marco Rubio. He goes, I know. You were saying nice things about Marco Rubio. That's bad for Trump. Anyhow, and then I said, well, I'm from New York. He's from New York. I said, hey, you're a piece of work. And he starts laughing at that point going, I know, I know. Having a little fun is what he said. Look, th this is Donald Trump. He likes to rib you a little bit. Uh, he likes to have some fun along the way. Uh, but, of course, it is all about Donald Trump. He's also a very serious uh, man who does some serious work out there. So just a cute little story to relate uh, to you. But definitely saw the serious side of Donald Trump uh, on Monday. And once again, that was a good thing for that interview. We're back in a moment with the rest of the show. Welcome to Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. End of the show. Joe Weber here, a news editor of JustTheNews.com. Joe, if you're a news editor, that means you have news. I have a lot of it. A lot of it. Well, you know what? Go. Time is money, as okay. Trump would say. Here I go. Uh, Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott. Republican. He's called a special session today uh, to reconvene the legislature that's going to happen in July. Uh, he didn't say exactly what was going on, but we all know what's going on, right? He's going to call them back to try to close a deal on these uh, laws that the legislature, the GOP-controlled legislature, tried to do to enhance safety, security of their uh, voting system mm -hmm. here. Of course, Democrats walked out of that. Yeah, they did. They did in uh, late May. It was the last hour of the session. They pulled sort of a political theater stunt where they walked out, went to a nearby church, but, uh, you know, what was, like we talked about before, what's the end game here? He's going to call them back and it's likely going to pass, so. Yeah. All right, well, that's interesting. Now, all right, so the New York, uh, we haven't really touched on the New York City mayoral race, so. Yeah, what's, just a little quick update, yeah. as I think your well-informed viewers already probably know. They are well-informed. Eric Adams, the uh, mm -hmm. Brooklyn Borough Chief and former New York City Police Captain, he's mm -hmm. in the lead with about 37%. Mm -hmm. And you have another candidate, Maya Wiley, who is a former, or is a lawyer for Governor Mayor Bill de Blasio, mm. and then Catherine Garcia and with, um, is in third place. Mm -hmm. Andrew Yang, who had such a promising start, 11% conceded last night. But nevertheless, what's interesting, I find, that is you know that the crime has gone up in that city 22%, the New York 
PD says, and set, got, shooting 72 percent. So the last year or so? Yes, just over the last mm -hmm. year, so and from May to May. But what you're looking at is with Adams was a guy who's really not a progressive. He's a guy who's going to be tough on crime. And, but what you do, if you take a look at the down ticket in the city mm -hmm. council races, the, uh, the Democratic Society of America, they had six members they put out there, six candidates they put out, yeah. and some early preliminary showings that at least two of them are in the lead in city council races. So, mm -hmm. you know, I see some parallel. You know, if you take a look at the White House race, you know, a moderate gets in. Right. Uh, the progressives, Warner, Ber um, Sanders, they didn't do so well. Quick mm -hmm. exits, right? But they're making sort of inroads uh, in the, some of the lower, you know, down ticket races. It's interesting to point out Alexandria yeah. Ocasio-Cortez, yeah. whose district is in the Brooklyn, Brook Bronx area. She mm -hmm. endorsed this Maya Wiley. So she's in second place, not to say that they're all not going to win. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they're not really making a big showing in the bigger races here. All right. I know we I got to run, but I know Senator uh, Warren. Oh, right. Yes. Know, Thank you very much for seconds. reminding me. Uh, the late great senator from Virginia, John Warren, mm -hmm. had a Warner had his funeral services today yeah. at the National Cathedral. It's a beautiful early summer day, 72 degrees. People nice. from inside told me the choirs were singing, so it's great. Got to run. See you tomorrow.